You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, and Zodiac Speaking. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of an adopted teenager who, after bouncing around the foster care system, was finally at home with a family that would bring much-needed stability to her life. But instead of a happy future with a new family, her life was cut short at the hands of someone who supposedly cared for her. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that the sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Annie Grace Kasperzak was born on January 10, 1997. She had a difficult childhood and suffered abuse growing up and was placed in the foster care system. That was tough on her due to the lack of a stable home and family to call her own. Eventually, she was adopted by Veronica Dennis Kasperzak when she was nine years old. Veronica had been Annie's social worker and couldn't bear to see her keep switching foster homes. The Kasperzaks felt that Annie would have a good home with them despite them having a young, growing family already. The adoption seemed like a good fit for everyone, and Annie was happy to have a new, stable family life. But eventually, Veronica and Dennis divorced, and that shook up the family dynamic, and it took time for Annie to adjust to the change. Both Veronica and Dennis remarried to other people, but they tried to provide as much stability for Annie as possible. Annie lived with Veronica and her new husband, James Bratcher, at their home in Draper, Utah, but Annie also stayed close with Dennis. It wasn't long before the typical things that affect any teenager kicked in for Annie. School, friends, and dating. Veronica tried to offer advice and support along the way for Annie, but also wanted Annie to follow rules that were laid down to give her structure. And as was typical with many teenagers, Annie was strong-willed and sometimes fought her family along the way. She began to spend more and more time with a young man she liked named Darwin Christopher Bagshaw. On the evening of March 10, 2012, Annie's family found a note from the 15-year-old. The note, which was left on her bed, stated that she was running away to California and that she was pregnant. 
Veronica anxiously called friends, as well as Christopher Bagshaw, to see if anyone had seen Annie. But no one had any information. Annie's stepfather, James Bratcher, called the police, and Annie Kasperzak was officially reported as a missing person by her family. The next morning at around 10.30 a.m., a jogger found a shoe on a trail of blood near South Jordan Parkway Trail. Police were notified, and due to the large amount of blood, they felt someone was seriously hurt, and a search was launched. Officers conducted an aerial search from a helicopter, and following the trail of blood, found Annie's body downstream, floating in the Jordan River. She was only wearing one shoe, and it matched the shoe that had been found in the blood. A search and rescue crew retrieved her body from the river by boat. Due to trauma and what seemed like a savage beating, Annie was basically unrecognizable. She later was identified through dental work, clothing, and old scars that she had. An autopsy on March 12th revealed that she had not drowned, but instead her skull had been fractured during the beating that killed her, and then she was tossed into the water. The news of Annie's death was shocking and awful for her family, and instead of building a new life and future for Annie, they now had to plan a funeral. About a week later, a woman named Joanna Franklin told the police that she had actually seen a man named Daniel Robert Ferry, someone she knew and used to buy drugs from, kill Annie because she had rejected his sexual advances. Joanna claimed that Ferry, who was 31 years old at the time, became enraged and slammed Annie's head into a wall. She fell down, unconscious, and then Ferry kicked her. Though she was still alive, it was alleged that Ferry and his friends, Vanua Vikite, and another man only identified as LJ, put Annie into his SUV and said they were heading up to the canyon. When they returned with their clothes bloody and Annie nowhere to be found, they simply said she had gone swimming. Or at least this is a story that Joanna Franklin told police. On March 19th, nearly 100 Joint Criminal Apprehension Team officers detained Ferry. He adamantly denied that he was involved in Annie's murder, claiming that he didn't kill little girls. And he was certain that his alleged partner, Vakite, hadn't been involved either, as well as telling police he didn't know anyone named LJ. On March 22nd, 30-year-old Venue Vakite was arrested. He also denied involvement in Annie's death. To their surprise, investigators found that Ferry had a rock-solid alibi for the time that Annie was murdered. What was his alibi? At the time Annie was killed, he was busy kidnapping and assaulting someone else, and he would later be sentenced to up to 15 years for kidnapping and possession with intent to distribute in that case. But he had nothing to do with Annie's murder. It turns out that Ferry had stopped selling heroin to Joanna, which he believed had made her angry enough to make up that lie about him. She was also facing charges of her own, and she hoped that cooperating in a big case would help her situation out. Ferry, Vagkite, and LJ, if he even existed, all were cleared, and police were left to find the real killer. But they already had someone in mind. Police moved on to their next best suspect, Darwin Christopher Bagshaw, Annie's boyfriend at the time of her death and someone they were looking at closely before Joanna Franklin heavily derailed the investigation with her false statement. Authorities had been on track and would have stayed on track early on if they hadn't been given this false information. Annie's cell phone records had shown she and 14-year-old Bagshaw were making calls back and forth until 8.30 p.m. on March 10, 2012. When investigators originally questioned Bagshaw in 2012, He told them that Annie had a nosebleed two weeks earlier while they were at a friend's house and that there would be blood on his shoelace from that. This by itself seems very suspicious, but the friend confirmed that Annie did have a nosebleed and that friend, along with Bagshaw, maintained the nosebleed story until investigators found a text message from Bagshaw asking that friend to lie to the police, specifically about the blood on his shoelace. There was also a text asking the friend not to say anything about his trip to the Jordan River and instructing him to delete the messages between the two of them. When faced with the text evidence, the friend admitted to lying, and instead stated that they had never seen Annie with a nosebleed at all. Now police were certain that Bagshaw was their man. When authorities searched Bagshaw's home, they found a handwritten timeline of the night Annie was murdered, shredded in the trash. There were also written notes about specific items of Annie's clothing, including a jacket. Annie's mother, Veronica, realized that the jacket described in that note matched the jacket that Annie had, which was also missing. Hauntingly, GPS data from Bagshaw's cell phone records showed that he was literally less than a football field's length away 
from the crime scene where Annie was attacked when Veronica called him asking him if he had seen Annie that night. 17-year-old Christopher Bagshell was finally arrested in Grand Junction, Colorado, where he had moved after Annie's death. He was held on $1 million bail for first-degree murder and obstruction of justice charges while he awaited extradition back to Utah. Since Bagshaw was just 14 years old when Annie was killed, officials struggled to decide whether to try him as a juvenile offender or whether the brutality of Annie's murder warranted trying Bagshaw as an adult. The charges were originally filed in juvenile court, but a judge decided to allow Bagshaw to be tried as an adult. During preliminary hearings, Joanna Franklin testified how she had lied, apparently witnessing another crime and mistaking the victim for Annie and multiple friends of Annie's testified about how she thought she was pregnant, and that she told them that she wanted to run away and get married, and she was hoping that Bagshaw would go with her. In late February 2016, one week before his trial was going to start, Christopher Bagshaw, who was then 18 years old, pleaded guilty to the murder of Annie Grace Kasperzak. Prosecutors hadn't offered him any kind of deal. They didn't need to. Their evidence was strong. But because of his decision... They recommended that the time he had already spent in custody while awaiting trial should be subtracted from what he would be sentenced to. During sentencing, Bagshaw's defense team acknowledged that he had snapped and beaten Annie to death with a shovel that he found at the scene. This was apparently in response to Annie telling him, along with her friends, that she was pregnant with his child. Prosecutors felt that there was an element of premeditation due to the secluded spot near the Jordan River where the attack happened. It appeared he had lured her to her death. Her planner made reference to him finding out about her pregnancy on March 1st, nine days before her murder. The autopsy actually proved that Annie wasn't pregnant, and it appears that she made the whole pregnancy story up. In court, Christopher Bagshaw simply said, I'm very sorry for everything that happened. On April 25th, 2016, he was sentenced to a maximum of life in prison, with the possibility of parole after at least 15 years. The Utah Board of Pardons and Parole set Bagshaw's first parole hearing for October 2034. Annie Kasperzak searched for peace and happiness her entire life and for people that would love her. And while she had finally found that in the Kasperzak family, she only found betrayal and a cruel death at the hands of a young man she thought cared for her. It was a tragic ending to such a young life, and Annie's family has spent the last decade without her wondering where her life may have ended up if given a chance to flourish in a loving environment. Annie's mom, Veronica, sat down with me to discuss this sad and tragic case. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. After a long day, I just want to curl up on the couch and get lost in a gripping story with characters that I can love and hate. Is that too much to ask? Nope. Thanks to Sundance Now, I always have something to watch that's binge-worthy and that I can be obsessed with. Sundance Now is an ad-free streaming network created by AMC Networks for people who obsess over riveting storytelling and fresh perspectives. Sundance Now has original prestige dramas, international thrillers, and bone-chilling true crime shows. Every show is a sleek production with sexy lead characters. They've got shows like the hit British series, A Discovery of Witches. It's the perfect mix of period drama, romance, and edge-of-your-seat thriller. Seasons 1 and 2 are streaming now, and Season 3, the final season, just began streaming on January 8th. I recently watched A Discovery of Witches. With a fantastic cast and well-written episodes, A Discovery of Witches is a fantastic show blending mystery, fantasy, vampires, and a host of strange creatures. If you're a fan of this genre, you'll find yourself captivated by the storytelling. And best of all, you have all three seasons to binge on. You can stream Sundance Now on all your favorite devices for as low as $4.99 a month. Just download the app or watch online and discover exclusive shows from around the world instantly. I found my next TV obsession on Sundance Now, and you will too. And I have great news. Listeners of The Murder My Family can try Sundance Now free for 30 days by going to SundanceNow.com and use promo code MURDERINMYFAMILY. That's SundanceNow.com, code MURDERINMYFAMILY for 30 days of free streaming. SundanceNow.com, code MURDERINMYFAMILY. Hey listeners, if you're like me and you like when investigative journalism and true crime combine, then I have a podcast suggestion for you. Season 3 of Criminal Conduct features an interview with an American serial killer in paradise. Host Javier Leva and John Taylor take you to the country of Panama to investigate the disappearance of several American expats who went missing after dealing with a man known as Wild Bill. 
The host spent several days interviewing the killer, trying to figure out his motivation. Did he kill these people for money or something more sadistic? I've listened to part of the interview, and let me say this. It gave me the chills. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. So, Javier, tell me about the uh, phone call you just got. I get this call from this guy who's known as Wild Bill. I want to be really clear that I don't feel like a serial killer. You know, and, and, and when I think of the word serial killer or the, of, the, of a person who's a serial killer, I think of a guy like Ted Bundy or, or a person who, who does things for compulsion or emotional needs, emotional reasons. And I, myself, I, I'm not a person who has any bloodlust. <laughs> These terrible things I did, I did, you know, um, starting about 15 years ago. And, and, and I was just a heartless, cold-blooded asshole who hurt and killed people for money. You know, I don't have a compulsion to kill people or a desire necessarily to do that. Listen to the full interview with Wild Bill, an American serial killer in paradise. Season three of Criminal Conduct premieres on February 18th, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, Veronica. I want to thank you for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your daughter Annie's case with us. Hi, Michael. It's good to be here. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Annie's case is, is a very tragic one, and the details of her death are, are awful. The road to find her killer wasn't a smooth one for you. Before we talk about the details in Annie's case, can you tell us a little bit about Annie herself and her life a bit? I know it's her life started out rough. Can you talk about how she came to you and, and your family? I met Annie at her seventh, it was either her seventh or her eighth birthday party um, when she was in foster care. And I was a brand new social worker for Child Protective Services. And she was assigned to my caseload. And part of being a caseworker means you have to see the kids that are on your caseload at least every month. And so... I had gone out to meet her for the first time and she was at her birthday party at a Chuck E. Cheese. And as the next couple of years progressed, um, she, Annie had been in foster care for several years by the, by before I even had met her, she'd been in foster care since she was about three years old. Um, she had some behaviors that were hard because she had been through some difficult things when she was younger. And so she, she was a, she was a handful. And in working with my team and things like that, our ultimate goal was to help Annie get adopted um, so that she would not have to move, so that she would have some of the stability as she was growing up. And after working her, with her for a few years, our, my ultimate goal was to help Annie be adopted. That was definitely a goal of the system and a goal of the setup. And as her caseworker, that was my job. I happened to be... I happened to be pretty young at the process. I was in my early 20s. And so, of course, had the gift of thinking, I can do anything. And in doing so, looked for adoptive families for Annie. And we had gone through a couple of different families who were very, I was very open. I'm very direct about here's what's going on and here's what she needs. And we had gone through two very specific um We'd gone through two very specific adoptive families, and it just didn't work out. And we were concerned that it was just not going to work out because she was just she was about ten by that time. Um, and so, in all of my youthful stubbornness and naivety, I approached my boss and I said we want to adopt Annie, my now ex-husband, but my husband at the time were like, no, this is challenging, but we can do this. And I also happened to be six months pregnant at the time. <laughs> um, and we ended up, and, and after a little bit of time and arrangement and things like that, we gave her an opportunity to be with this other family that we were matching to see if the adoption might work out or if the placement might work out, and it did not. Um, and in the meantime, she was spending, we transferred her case over, and she was spending some time and having visits with me and my husband and my my already one son, and then my second son after he was born. And after that, she just 
she moved in with us and as soon as we legally could, we adopted her. Wow. And I, I guess as a caseworker, you want to help as many kids as you can. Is it, that seems like it would be something that you'd want to almost adopt every kid. Was there something special about Annie that you said, I, I want to bring her home to my, my house? I wouldn't say, I mean, that sounds, it makes me feel horrible as a parent. It wasn't that it was necessarily specific to Annie alone, although I have had those experiences with the other children that I have adopted past that point. Um, Cause I've adopted five other children since then, not necessarily expecting to. And for Annie, the belief for me was very much the perspective of here's a kid who is in heart of hearts, generally a good kid. However, she is really difficult and she's quite challenging because she has had a heck of a time getting to this point. And so even though those behaviors and those challenges are intense, they're understandable given her experiences. And unfortunately, that is not a perspective that most people accept because it is exhausting to parents, whether it be your biological child or a stepchild or an adoptive child, it's exhausting to parents a kiddo who who doesn't trust you, who has had a rough place and who has not had who who just doesn't fit what we may think is our traditional parenting mold. And I didn't and and I'm a very big believer in well, you can't wait for somebody else to do it if you it is then your responsibility to do it. And so that's that's why we adopted Annie. Oh. Did and and once you brought her home and she started living there full time. Did it take a while for her to sort of feel her way into the, into your family or did it come pretty naturally? What happened there? My darling Annie was a firecracker from the beginning to the end (laughs) because I mean, absolutely. I mean, good heavens, you've moved. We were the 10th family of the 10th placement that she'd had by the time that she was the age of 10. Um, And so she, from her own perspective, really had no reason to believe that this was going to be any different. And she was very, it was an alternate because there were times that were just amazing and wonderful. And there were times that were just exhausting and frustrating and overwhelming. Um, But it, it was one of those elements of, we love her. I mean, still love her even after she's gone and we made a commitment to her and we did everything we can and there were times we had to have outside agencies and services to help her because she was struggling and especially as she went into puberty and things in life changed we needed some additional supports to help her and but we weren't giving up on her well and it it sounds like it was definitely challenging but you know in the long run you were happy to have her in your life and you were giving her a stable environment. And I I take it that at some point your family sort of gelled and she, she became part of the family. I I know I've read in some of the research that she took uh, your divorce from your ex-husband, her adopted father, pretty tough. Was that sort of something that was like a hiccup in the, she had just gotten used to everything, and then that that happened. Is that something that sort of disrupted her life a little bit? Do you think? Yes, in some ways, but I also don't think that her behaviors were necessarily specific to anything with the divorce. I know that was an angle that my ex-husband and his family said, but her behaviors weren't necessarily any different after the divorce than they were before the divorce. Because one of the challenges is that near that same time. She was also going through puberty and some of the things that she was doing were very similar to the things that she'd done even before the divorce. So I don't know that the divorce was different, but it was change and it was a way for her to continue. And, and in many ways we expected this to be the bumpy ride. I mean, teenage years for some people can be super smooth, but for your average person, especially for kids who are trying to figure out who they are and where they fit, most of the time are pretty rocky and have some pretty steep ledges involved in them. Oh, and yeah. we yeah. had anticipated that for Annie. Yeah, and 
I, I, I yeah. think you hit it right on the head. I think you're you're right that whether it's an adopted child or your your own child that you gave birth to, those teenagers can can be tough and and there can be a lot of uh, trying times. Yeah. She's trying to figure out who she is and she wants to figure out what that is, regardless of what we say or do that she's just trying to do it her way. And that was, that was her approach. And in the end, she was actually starting to settle down a little bit because I mean, I remarried and one of the things that was great in her gelling with the family is she was probably more connected with my kids not that she wasn't connected with us as her parents or even my, my current husband when I got remarried. It was kids were safer for her. She had a really great bond and connection with my two boys who were three and, and just a baby when we adopted her. And that was a big part of her life. And, and she really liked them. And my, my oldest son is in college now. <clears throat> and he would tell me and he'll, he would still tell the stories about how when she was in those early teenage years and things like that, she would come into his room and he's six years younger than he, she is. So he's in elementary school. She's in junior high. And she would come in and ask him all these questions about boys and relationships. And she really loved the big sister role to the point where she went through a couple of different treatment programs when some of her behaviors became needed some more attention. And even then her perspective was, okay, well, these kids over here need a home. Can we bring them home with us? And <laughs> she, she was very, very much a rescuer and, and things improved. And, and she just, I, ha I had to say, honey, I don't have any more energy right now. I love you. And I love that you love these other people, but I do not have enough left to give it to anybody else right now. So she she wanted to sort of spread what you had given her to other people. She did. She got to a point where she's like, oh, my parents, they're constantly coming to visit to see me. They don't ever have to worry. I don't have to worry that they're in jail or that they're high or that they're just not showing up. As much as I didn't like having her to be in, in some different treatment centers and things like that, it also gave her a perspective that some of the kids that were having some similar behaviors issues that she had didn't have, didn't always have that place to go back home to. And it gave her a different appreciation that she wasn't getting from just living with us. She just thought this is what everybody has. And so this is what I'm doing. And when she recognized really and got that stark contrast of this isn't what everybody has, it gave her a little bit of a transition of a, okay, well, I guess I really don't want to let go of this as much as it might be hard sometimes. Um, it gave her a different appreciation that, that she didn't have before that. Yeah, well, it, it sounds like something that, uh, you, you know, a, a real challenge to, to bring someone into your home like that, make them part of your family, and then make them let down their guard, that it's safe here, that you're not going to be going through this, this stuff. And... Uh, did she, did there come a time, you know, especially early in 2012, did she start changing, you know, dating, stuff like that? Was there any noticeable change in her that you were aware of or that you saw that you were starting to become maybe worried about? Around that time, she she was going through a moment and she was she was in that, that junior high, early high school phase. And... She started to be increasingly interested in boys, not necessarily atypical for her age, but she started to like them and wanted to like her and, and that typical back and forth. At that time, she had decided she wanted to take a break from my house and figured it might be easier the fall before she passed um, to spend. She spent about a month or so at her dad's house thinking that it would be easy to go and live with dad. And it didn't really work out that way. But in going to live with dad, he had switched her to a charter school. And the charter school, while a really good charter school, she just really didn't feel like she fit in. It was for your typical high achieving kiddos. And while she did okay at school, school was still kind of hard for her and she didn't fit the cultural norms. 
And so she was missing her friends from the public school that was by our house. And again, this is just miles, a couple of miles away. I lived within five miles of my ex-husband at that time. And so we had, she had talked about wanting to reconnect with one of her old friends, Chris, and they had still seen each other in the neighborhood and he'd gone over to see her at her dad's house and was really eager at wanting to see him again and transition back to the junior high um, next to our house because that was where she felt more comfortable. She wanted to be around people that she felt weren't too weren't too goody two shoes. I think was her her common phrase of no, they're just they're just too goody two shoes for me. I don't fit with them. So she wanted to have a slightly different group to move back to where she had felt a little more connected before, and that was what she was working on in that in that early winter, early spring. Let's go back to March 2012 when Annie went missing. Uh, I, I think that's where your nightmare really began. And you found a note. Can you tell us a little bit about that day and finding that note and what that note mentioned? The day was, and I still remember the day, and it's been almost 10 years. It was an interesting day because. The morning was unusual because Annie had had this weird conversation with us. She she starts off the conversation with a, so if somebody told me something, they told not to tell my parents, what should I do? And I said, if somebody ever tells you, don't tell your parents, that is the very first thing you should do. And she told us a conversation that Chris, her boyfriend she was seeing, told her, asked her, what would you what would you do if I told you to run away with me, but not tell anybody else? And she said she'd not quite answered him or just kind of, Oh, well, I don't know. And, and gone like that. And, and I had the conversation with her. I said, honey, if you ever go missing, he's going to be the first person we call. And so the day kind of continued. I took my other kiddos and my niece to the zoo and Annie wanted to stay home because she had just had her wisdom teeth pulled and had missed some school. So she was working on schoolwork and the day was kind of quiet. And then evening comes around. And my husband and I go out to dinner and leave her because she's 15 at the time. We're going a mile away to have dinner, come home, and everything's quiet. And then later, I go to check on her and say, hey, got to take your medicine. And by the way, you're not supposed to be on your cell phone in your room. That's one of our rules because you don't always make great choices. And I went downstairs and she wasn't in her room. I didn't originally see the note. I came back upstairs thinking, oh, she's just being a teenager. She's trying to, to gray area the rules. Maybe she's outside in the back patio. Maybe she's out front by the garage. Not thinking really anything more of it than that, but yelled to my husband as I came back upstairs, hey, Annie's not downstairs. And so my husband goes downstairs and he's actually the one that finds the note. And he comes upstairs with the note. I call the police, but in the note, it's, it's very much kind of a, hey, mom, I'm so sorry. I told people at school that I was P, implying pregnant, and that she was going to run away to California, and that she just, that she had to go. Was and that- she mentioned some, that she'd run away with some boy named LJ, which was confusing to us, because then we go, who is LJ? Yeah, because you know her to be dating this guy, Chris. Correct. And and did it catch you off guard? I mean, was it something that was a shock to you? Or did you think maybe because of the things she had gone through that this might be something she might act out on? I... Annie was never really good at being 100% honest with her friends. That is something that she'd struggle with long before she came to live with us. Annie was very much, she loved people and she so much wanted people to love and notice her. And so sometimes in doing so, she was easy on the truth. And which is not uncommon for a lot of different teenagers. She wanted to fit in. She wanted to be liked and she wanted to have them notice and think about her. And so her saying things at school wasn't surprising to me. And while I wasn't I wasn't totally shocked that she would have left the house because she'd left the house 
a couple of times before, but usually it was during the daytime. And usually it was very much to go to her friends or go to the library. And it was very much with an indignant, I'm just showing you that you're not in control of me. <laughs> I can go where I want and do what I want and I'll be home when I choose to. But that, I mean, I can even see her flipping her hair as I think about it in my mind. I mean, typical teenage, I'm all grown up now. What do you mean you're going to control what I do? <laughs> and and, and was... I, I meant to yeah. ask you too. You mentioned she she stated that she had told people she was pregnant. Was that something that sort of shocked you? Was that did that catch you off guard? Not entirely. She had had sex. It was one of the reasons she ended up moving out of her dad's house. She had snuck her boyfriend in her window and had sex for the first time. And we had been the very quick responsive parents. We took her into the doctor. We got her on birth control and she had fairly strict supervision roles. She was still going to the charter school and that meant she was picked up and dropped off. And so she didn't have a lot of other options and she could hang out with friends sometimes. But I had heard from the school counselor that she was still telling people she was pregnant on occasion. So I'd had some of those school counselor conversations and I said, she's seen the doctor. We've gone through this. Just a little bit of teenage drama. And was so it wasn't true that she was actually pregnant, is that correct? Oh no. It was she was not actually pregnant at all. And but I know in some ways she as much as it was scary to her, and it was a conversation we'd had before, in some ways she wanted to be because in her mind with her experiences and her ideas about attachment. The idea was if I have a baby, nobody can take this baby away from me. And here is my new family. And that's not uncommon for teenage girls, especially who, who are struggling with, with feeling totally accepted and connected, especially when you're talking about adoption and foster care. It's the idea that if I lost my biological family, here's how I can create a different biological family that I am in charge of. Yeah, who's always going to be with me. Yep. Oh. So you mentioned you didn't mess around. You called the police right away. Did they take her being missing seriously, or was it one of those, oh, we have to wait 24 hours before we do anything? What was the initial reaction? Because she's a minor, um, we had some other things. We had the police there within a couple of minutes. Shortly after I called the police, and we're looking at the note, I called Annie's boyfriend, Chris. And I was actually on the phone with Chris and I was very clear because Annie'd had that conversation in the morning and I was very clear. Have you seen Annie? She's missing. If you hear from her and if she's with you, you need to tell me right now. <laughs> um, you know, your typical mom boyfriend shakedown thinking nothing necessarily dangerous, but thinking she's just doing something stupid. And the police show up and they take a report. And as he's doing this, because this is all unfolding within less than a 30 minute window, and it feels like it's on fast forward, we are going, we need to track Annie's cell phone. Her cell phone's not home, so let's track it. But because we hadn't tracked it before, we had to go through all the pain in the butt stuff of we've got to activate the tracker on within her phone. And so you have to walk through that whole cell phone sign up system of the tracking services. So we're waiting just to get the services turned on and we have the police officer with us. And then the tracker comes on and we can see her and see the general area because just like any other GPS tracker and especially GPS 10 years ago, it gives you a general area, not a she's right here right now, like GPS might do for us today. <laughs> and you see her in a zone and within seconds there's really quick movement of the signal and then all of a sudden the signal's gone. So you're literally watching as the signal vanishes. Yep. And because of the general area and what was going on, um, we assumed that she was moving so fast. So we assumed at that time that she must be in a car, especially given her notes saying I'm running away to California. We figure, Oh, she's moving really fast. This is too fast for a person. She must be in a car. And that, you know, she was getting on the street in the car so that she could drive away to California. Um, in retrospect, it's probably when her phone hit the water. 
so you you're waiting for answers you're waiting for the police to hopefully find her there's no sign of her uh but it wasn't long before uh, your worst fears were confirmed her body was found can you tell us about about her body being discovered who found it and how, how was she recovered well the next day um there was a body found in the river just not a mile or so from my house there's a big river called the jordan river that runs through the majority of the salt lake valley and there was a body in the river and it had been on the news and my husband and I weren't big news watchers at the time because of our particular career field. And my ex-husband calls me. He's at an airport in Dallas. And he says, hey, because his sister lives in the area as well. Lisa just called me and said that they found a body in the river not far from us. And they were saying that it was some 20-year-old Asian woman. He says, but that's really close in between our houses and with Annie missing you should call up and, and just double check. And it was, so of course, immediately we look online and what we found out for the first time is that there had been some walkers because there was a jogging path near the river and the jogger had called in to the local police that there was a lot of blood in the area. The police come out and they initially do the test of, is it human or animal blood? Because at the time there were some weird things going on where they're there was a dairy farm not far from the area as well. And there had been some kids that would, that, that had cow blood. And so originally when the police show up, they had said they weren't really thinking it was anything more than animal blood. Well, when the blood turns red for, you know, says, yes, this is human. And then they see a red shoe on the walkway right by the river. That's when apparently they had brought out the holocraft, the helicopters and were searching and had found her body stuck in the weeds. But because it had been in the water, likely anticipated overnight, they she was very bloated. And that's when they made the assumption it was a 20-something-year-old Asian woman. So when we're seeing this information on the news the next day, originally, the logic button would tell you the thing is a 20-something-year-old Asian woman. Your daughter's a 15-year-old Hispanic girl. They, they couldn't possibly be. But there was something... In me, initially, as soon as we see the news, I call the dispatch and say, hey, I know this is a little weird, but my daughter was missing last night. We filed the police report. We are right in this area. Would you let the detectives and information and, and people there know, can we just rule her out? This is what I'm telling the officers over the phone. I just want to rule her out, but let you know because we're all in the same area. It was, it wasn't seconds after I hang up the phone with the police because the police at that point have told me absolutely nothing and I can I can no longer breathe I am just overwhelmed and there's a soul shaking feeling in my body that nobody has confirmed anything but I know I know that it is Annie how long did it take for them to confirm that it was her hours it was such a frustrating horrible mess because in that moment, as soon as I can catch my breath and as I'm trying to catch my breath, I just call my parents who, who had lived 10 minutes away from us. I said, you need to come and get the boys. Something's happened to Annie because I was having a breakdown and I didn't want and I couldn't do that in front of my in front of my kiddos because our boys were were really young at the time. They were early elementary school, kindergarten and preschool. And so my parents come and get the kids. We wait an hour, hour or so. We don't hear anything from anybody. We call the police back and we go, hey, we have already called. We really need somebody to get back to us. Um, and the dispatcher at this point says, well, we're not really covering it. Why don't you call these people? So we call another police department because it was right in between the two cities because the river divides the cities. And so we call the other police department and they send an officer out to the house. And we we give the description, and he takes the 8x10 photo of Annie from, we, we give him the 8x10 photo of Annie from our, our kind of mantle place where we had all the pictures of the kids hanging up to go with him. And he takes my cell phone number, and within 10 or 15 minutes, the, you know, the, the short drive and the location between our house and the river, maybe not even that long, I, I have no 
exact recognition of time, he starts to text me. Does Annie have any particular markings or scars on her body or anything else like that? And she had just recently had surgery to have her gallbladder move. And, and so I had told him about, about those scars. And then he asked the text message that next come in, is she wearing any headgear, implying any braces and things like that? And again, I already know. I, I, and, and I say yes and describe her braces. And then I don't hear anything. And my husband and I at this point are going, we're just waiting for the police to show up. And we are literally watching out our windows. And I, I would say it was probably, it felt like at least an hour. And it may not have been that long, but it was not instantaneous between the officer no longer responding. And then the police show up at, at our door and we invite them in. And and they tell us, based on those things, that, that, it, that it is Annie that is in the river. Uh, that's got to be shocking to, you know, you're holding out hope, but then they're here to tell you that, un- unfortunately, uh, it is her. Uh, that had to be really tough for you and, and your kids to deal with that, that information. How soon did they go into detail that not only is she dead, but she's been essentially beaten to death and, and murdered. How quickly did you find that information out and how did you process that? That was actually one of the first converse parts of the conversation we had that she was dead and that, and, and our original, I thought and belief was that she had committed suicide or that had, there had been some sort of accident because she had struggled with depression and some suicidal thoughts at times. And so even with the body going on, our very initial impressions all the way up to this point was there was an accident or she had somehow committed suicide. And we asked, and and the officer at the time, the detective, said there's no way this is suicide. And, and he didn't go into the specifics of the details of what killed her at that time, but just implied, but told us she has two black eyes. She didn't do this to herself. And it wasn't until I heard the coroner's report when we were at one of the trials that I found out how very badly she had been beaten. So he, he tells you this isn't suicide. Um, she has black eyes and you wouldn't find out till later she was beaten, but it, you knew early on that it wasn't at her own hands. So did you say right away, I go check this person out. I think this person is the one that did it. Did you discuss that with the police? I really had no idea who had done it. Um, and I, and I don't think my brain could comprehend because part of me was going who in their right mind would intentionally kill a 15 year old kid. Uh, I I didn't point my finger at anybody. I said, these are the friends and, and these are the people. I told him about the boyfriend and that he had said that he wasn't with her, but he had called me multiple times. He had called, when I called Chris, he had called me back later that night and called me again on Sunday, likely after he saw the body in the river being found. But even with those behaviors, while I knew his behaviors were odd, I didn't initially even think it must be him. I just, I, I'm sure I was in shock. I, I didn't imagine, but we told them we will do, we will help you with everything. We gave them every computer we could in the house, anything that she had ever touched. We're like, here, take it, take whatever you need. You want to look at her room? Go for it. You can search the whole house. You can have access to whatever you want. We were, we didn't hold anything back. If you, if they wanted it, if she might have touched it, they could have whatever they wanted. It seems like they locked in. At least early on, they had an interest in in this guy, Chris. Was there something that whatever he told them that they weren't able to act on, or they didn't act on right away? Was there something that sort of shifted their attention elsewhere? Well, one of the challenges is that right in the beginning. Um, because in any kind of relationship or death scenario, you always look at typically if it, you look at romantic partners first 
And then if it's a kid, you look at the parents. That's because those are statistically the most common offenders of assault and homicide. Um, thankfully, I had never got the impression from the police, even though we found out later that my husband and I had both had other people connected to our exes turn us in and say, no, the parents must have done it. It was, but the police had, were always beautifully kind. And they're like, no, this doesn't make sense. But they said, by the way, these people did say that you probably did it. And we're like, we didn't tell them, do whatever you need. We didn't do this. Yeah. But you were fully cooperating and they didn't have any reason to suspect you. Absolutely. And so they had looked at the boyfriend and the boyfriend, when, when they were talking with Chris, there were some sketchy things that, that they shared with us from the interview that they were having the conversation. He gave them the same, Oh no, I didn't see Annie at all. I was around here and doing this and that and the other. Oh, but by the way, if you check my shoes, there might be Annie's blood on it. Um, which obviously immediately piques their attention and he had brand new shoes and, and he'd still had his old shoes and they were at that point cooperating and, and the dad's like, yeah, go give him your shoes because I'm sure even Chris's dad didn't even imagine that his son could have done this at this time. And then after that, Chris got a lawyer, the family got a lawyer for Chris. And after that initial interview, until he was arrested, Chris never spoke to the police again. And that was over a year, year and a half later. And in the meantime, while they're still doing this investigation, the drops of blood on the shoe were small. Chris writes it off and says, no, no, it's a nosebleed. And they know it's a little spooky because he's already tried to coerce his friend over text message nonetheless, because teenagers are stupid that oh tell the police it's this and this and this and text your friend while the police are sitting there to him yeah um and they're like and and the friend thankfully started out and then he and then he tells the police right there oh yeah this is what's going on this is what he's telling me and and so they're like there's something up with this kid but within want to say I'd have to look at dates specifically but within a couple of weeks less than a month there what changes the case is there's a woman named Joanna who gets arrested for drug charges in another city not terribly far but within the same major metro area and says oh hey by the way I know who killed that girl and she goes on to talk about this other long criminal history if you're looking for a bad guy he really fits the deal he was your kind of your your early 20s early 30s gang involvement member daniel ferry who's had a lot of drug history and who was really familiar with the police because he he didn't like to color inside the lines and so when you think of a death of a kid of course we're thinking this must be some dangerous gang related no so the police jump on that and and go after Daniel Ferry and do, and he happens to have this associate who can also has the, the nickname LJ and, and they're thinking, all right, this is it. And this woman's story to them was really believable. And, and so the police get lost on that tooth chase and arrest him. And what, changes it is that they find out really this guy essentially alibis out in some ways of killing Annie because he was beating up another woman but they don't find this out and then until months and then obviously the media and the public thinks well it's solved and the police are quietly investigating but of course don't ever say oh by the way it's not him Oh. Until my my husband and I, we have a press conference on the one year anniversary of Annie's death at the bridge where she died. And because we were working with the detective, there were some other bumps in the line because it switched over to a new detective. But shortly after it switched over to a new detective, the original detective on the case was murdered in the line of duty, <laughs> having absolutely nothing related to Annie's case, but somebody who was really trying to do a suicide by cop thing. And, and that slowed the case down as well, because 
all the information that that Detective Johnson Derek had had went with him. I mean, he had documented things and it had moved over to to the new detective Jacqueline, who was amazing. Um, but that was hard, not on the case, but also on the police force, because that was pretty serious loss. Sure. And it wasn't until we stirred things up and opened things up again because the police weren't making any other statements or anything else. And we openly went, we had a press conference, we had a vigil and we said, this isn't solved. Don't pretend it's solved. And we were, we, we started the public campaign again so that it could get back in the news and the media and offered a reward and, and information saying we're not done yet. Our, the detective at the time, Jacqueline, was amazing. She paid for on her own money to go to a cell phone tracking seminar and out of state and connected with with a gentleman. I know his first name is Ray, and I can't remember his last name, who specialized and had all of this special equipment on how do you trace? Because at that time, cell phone signals were all about how are they bouncing off different towers, that they're not an exact identification, but it's all about how do you identify location based on tower signal. And so she had actually convinced this, this gentleman, he brought his whole company, his cars and his team, and they tracked that entire area with, they were driving it with their cars and using their machines so that they could understand what the cell phone data tower, tower data meant. And they found out in checking the cell phone data from Annie's phone and from Chris's phone that there was only one place he could have been at the time, the night that she was murdered. And it was where she was murdered based on where his cell phone put him at the time that I called him. Oh, that's pretty damning. And I guess it was pretty intense. And I guess that that's uh, sort of where his downfall as we mentioned is because you know he's found guilty um of this uh, and, and was he found guilty did he take a plea deal or did he actually uh go to trial we had we ended up we had a trial first in juvenile court because he was um when he was arrested he was about 17 just and so because the crime was committed when he was 14 just shy of 15 we had to go through juvenile court first to have him go to court as an adult. And because we were pushing and, and the attorneys were good, were like, because of the laws in Utah, if he had not, if he had served and stayed in juvenile court, he would have been completely released off paper, off everything by the time he was 21, which was three and a half years away. Oh. And we were not okay with that. And so we pushed, we did have a trial in juvenile court where the judge said, no, there's enough evidence. And we do feel like this is reasonable to put into adult court. So we went to adult court. We had a trial scheduled and they were at jury selection. They were literally at the week of jury selection when he decided to enter and change his plea to guilty. One of the things that that is suspected that led to the change in plea is that they were listening to his cell phone conversations that he was having with his friends while he was in jail. And apparently there was conversation that originally part of the defense was, well, we were just going to say she was walking, we were walking around the edge of the bridge and she fell and hit her head. But while he was in the juvenile detention center, he had described a pretty gruesome scene to this other individual, which he wasn't sure was real or a dream. That was one of the concerns and comments that broke that came up in the closing arguments that he had made Annie dig her own grave and bake for her life. And after those comments and with the autopsy reports, I think he and, and his attorneys decided there's no way for you to claim this is an accident. Nobody will believe you. And so he ended up pleading guilty a week before we were scheduled for trial. Oh. Was that uh, welcome news to you that he was, you know, going to own up to this and, um, you know, take a sentence and not try and fight it? Yes and no. I wasn't necessarily worried about him trying to fight it. I felt really comfortable with the DA's case. Our biggest concern really would have been if he had tried to claim it was an accident, but I think the autopsy report alone would have proven not, and we would have had more concern of, 
are they going to have, would a jury have pity on him and hold him less responsible because of how young he was at the crime? That would have been our biggest X factor is, will they hold him less responsible due to his age? But at the other part, I wish in some ways there would have been a trial because I wish I would have been able to, not that a trial would have required it. I wish he would have said anything because in this whole process, after he was arrested, aside from what he said to people when he was incarcerated, he never explained why he never explained details. He never said anything. And I wish that's the part that I wish would have happened. But again, if it would have happened in trial, it may or may not have been accurate at all. So I probably wouldn't have gotten it anyway. So you were hoping for some kind of explanation that might make sense and and you could try and rationalize and you, you didn't get any of that. No, I mean, in my head, I had, I had been telling myself, I'm sure it was an impulsive moment. I had all of these weird fantasies that, it was a it was a split second decision. It was an impulsive moment. He was just a scared, stupid, mad kid. And then when we hear the stories about what he told the other people was he, when he was in detention and the idea that it was premeditated um, was strongly suggested. I was I was so heartbroken. I I didn't even have. I wasn't even angry. I was, I was just so heartbroken that, that a person could intentionally have made the decision to do that to somebody that loved them. Just awful. And it seems like he was cold blooded, whether it was a minor or not. It seems like he was very, uh, uh, very destructive person. Uh, he was sentenced to, to what was it? 15 years to life. 15 to life. Yep. Are you s- satisfied with that sentence? Yes and no. Yes, because that's all that's technically available. The way the Utah guidelines work, that is it. You can't, there, there is no other options. Obviously, the death penalty wasn't an option because of his age, nor would it have been something that would have been my preference or recommendation. His first parole hearing was set for 17 years. Um, in truth, if he keeps his head down in jail and doesn't do anything exceptionally stupid, the odds are that he will be out in his mid thirties. He will be, I mean, he will be only slightly younger than me at the time when we were going through the trial and he will still have the next, the rest of his life. And that part, that part feels uncomfortable, but it feels uncomfortable because, I have significant doubts that he really takes what he's done seriously because I've heard I've heard other accounts from some of Annie's friends who have met who have had relationships with less than less than stellar gentlemen who have also been incarcerated with Chris and and the rumor of how he was explaining his actions around jail is I was just high on spice and just minimizing it and when I hear those things it makes me mad and makes me so frustrated and it's the you really don't care that you that you made such a you took something away that can never get back and you're just trying to just trying to be a thug and you still get a chance to have a life yeah so he's never really shown any kind of remorse or sorrow over what he did not to my knowledge but I also don't have a lot of contact with him. I had started arrangements to have a conversation with him in, in prison. And maybe I will get an opportunity to do that before he, he goes up for parole. I'm very open to that. Um, but I have no control and no guarantees of how honest he would or wouldn't be with me anyway. Yeah. And the the last thing you want to worry about, too, is him getting out, as you mentioned, in his 30s and not being changed, not being, uh, you know, reformed and taking someone else's child from them, you know, God forbid. Well, and that was one of the concerns that the police shared with us because they did have an FBI profile through the case and the idea, the, per- the profile that was, we didn't get to see the profile, but the summary of the profile that presented to us was 
this is not a one-time behavior that given away with this, this is a cold, disconnected, antisocial type behavior that <clears throat> shows significant risk of repeating. And unless he does or approves something differently, I'm not sure that it would be any different. And so I, I don't. And so the only thing that gives me a little bit of hope is that he probably will get out. And I hope and pray that he stays on probation and parole for the rest of his life. That makes sense. It's just a matter of weeks. Annie will have been gone 10 years. Uh, has it been hard just missing out on all the things that she might have accomplished, all the, the things that she might have done in her life and the time that you missed out, you know, sharing those experiences with her? Absolutely. And what is interesting is, is it's the things that I don't necessarily recognize, but when I have an experience with my oldest son is 18, um, off at college, she just graduated last year. And after he passed the eighth grade, Annie's, Annie's last year that she was alive, when he got to eighth grade, that was a hard point for me because it was a, I haven't been past this point before when he graduated when he went off to college, when he got a driver's license, his first, which would ideally be a point of extreme joy and, and excitement and, and probably trepidation for any parent who our kiddos are getting bigger, bring back significant waves of sadness because, again, it's a reminder of what will never happen for Annie. And, and that's hard. I, I struggle on her birthday every year without fail and and more so on on the day on the day of her death every year I rearrange my work schedule I rearrange everything else to be somewhere else because even 10 years later and I'm a certified mental health therapist licensed I I help people specifically with these things but part of doing that is recognizing on that day my body does something different Every year without fail, I have nightmares. I am up all hours of the night. And so as part of taking care of me and my family, I just anticipate that I cannot expect what I will do and what will happen with my body that day. And and I just make sure that I gave space for that. They say time heals all wounds. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but hopefully as these years go by, you'll you'll feel some kind of healing and not have to go through that for forever. I'm not against, I mean, I'm okay not, not having that. And it does change. It's not nearly as severe as it was before, but it also doesn't scare me. I mean, time will change and there are different things and there are different emotional impacts as time passes, but Annie doesn't, she's never going to be erased from my life. And if there are moments where missing her hurts physically and emotionally, I'm okay with making space for that. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview for a true crime podcast called Twisted Travel and True Crime. Be sure to give it a listen. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family. And I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. Let me entertain you with crazy travel stories, true crime stories, and survival stories from all over the world. I've covered insane asylum murders, being buried alive, a crazy trip to Kinky Cottage, as well as being trapped under 100 feet of water for 60 hours. I can't forget to mention plots for financial gain, serial killers, and so much more. Please listen to Twisted Travel and True Crime on your favorite podcast platform.